0: Done, reaching the world. Arms
1: open, arms open, yeah. Welcome back to Crazy Beat Talk. I'm Sarah. I'm Erica.
2: And I'm Steve. So friends, we are in the middle of a series on justice and what that looks like, biblically speaking. And so we, we've tackled the Old Testament, we've tackled the Beatitudes, and last week we tackled just the, the rest of Matthew's Gospel, um, and All of then, it. We
0: wrestled it into submission.
2: <laughs> well, you know, we wrestled with the other, uh, some parables and some uh, some stories of what Jesus tells us about justice and what it means to be in right relationship with one another. And so now we're moving on to the rest of the gospel. So, Steve, what Gospels are we going to look at today?
0: Today, our jumping off point will be in Luke's Gospel, uh, and we'll spend some time later in John, I hope. Uh, and a story in particular, we could spend days and days and days just uplifting different themes out of mm-hmm. Luke's gospel to be sure but one that seems like it's worth at least I- examining is a parable called the that's often called the rich man and Lazarus um and it's it stands out as a little bit weird in a number of ways one is that it's one of the few parables where there's a named character most of the time it's generic there was a farmer or there was a landowner or there was a king or something like that and we still have anonymous rich man <clears throat> there's i think we'll discover a reason why he's not given a name and Lazarus is given a name um uh, but it's, it's a, a parable, the gist of which goes like this. And it's in Luke 16, verses 19 and following. <clears throat> there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. He said, Then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, so that they will not also come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. He said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Dun, dun, dun. Like d- dropping the hint to what's going to happen to Jesus. <laughs> okay, so what, what, what do you make of a story like
2: this? So this story, I think, at least as we're reading it through it now, really connects to what we just talked about at the end of the last episode in Matthew 25. Mm-hmm. You know, taking care of the, the poor, the hungry, mm-hmm clothing the naked, I mean, this is, you've got Lazarus, who is clearly poor, mm-hmm. he's hungry, I mean, he's starving, he's got dogs licking his sores, I mm-hmm. mean, like, It's super disgusting. It, it's, <laughs> it's super gross, I mean, my dog licks me all the time, but like, <laughs> that's kisses, and that's sweet, and that's cute, this is like, really gross and disgusting. And even
0: more so, in an ancient Near Eastern culture, where dogs are not pets, dogs are yes. like, the disgusting street animals. It's,
1: it's like a raccoon, just comes up, yes. and yes. 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 yes, you. This know. is like
0: a trash panda, now <laughs> licking your face.
2: Uh huh. Um, and you know, I, I see once again Jesus taking pity on the poor. Maybe, and maybe "pity" is the wrong word there. Well, I, as I, th- I don't
0: know. I think I think it's worth like sticking a pin in. Like we'll have to figure out what's the word for how we regard this. But clearly, the focus is on this person who's the neighbor in need, right? Yes.
1: Yes. So I think that this is important—an important time to take a look at how people in the first century oh. viewed wealth, ah. because wealth is something that. especially in the first century was viewed as a pie Mm -hmm. you know there's only so much wealth to go around so um you have a pie and you are given your slice of pie and if you have a giant piece of pie of wealth that means that somebody else either has a very small slice or doesn't get a slice at all Mm -hmm. and so you have the option if you so wish with your giant slice of pie that you could cut off some of your pie and give it to somebody who has no pie or you can just be all like oh man i love coconut cream pie let me (laughs) eat all of this um and so i think especially here in this parable we are supposed to read this as if the rich man, he saw somebody with no slice of pie, yeah. and he did not share his slice of pie. And it's an important
0: note there, I think, because modern-day economists might argue whether or not that is always true about the nature of uh, wealth being a limited some 0 sum game. Is it like pie, or is wealth created? And we could say maybe there are technological advances that make it different in our age or whatever, but it's worth, if you want to get in the mind of this text and this story, yeah, the assumption is that wealth, and, and wealth isn't like intangible stuff that's just abstract, like dollars in a bank, but it's always tangible in terms of food to feed your children and a shelter and a place to live. So it is very much a, a, a zero-sum game of if you have food and somebody else has none, the assumption, not just of the ancient Near East, but I think of, of ancient Israel, is the thing to do is you make sure your neighbor has food to I hope we've been hearing all along through this whole series, that's the default assumption, not just of the Torah, which makes commandments like, make sure you leave uh, gleanings in your field for those who have no land of their own, Uh, but also the prophets who say things like, the fast that God cares about is welcoming those who are hungry to your table. And that's why I think it's really important that at the tail end of this story, the conversation about uh, send somebody from the dead to warn my brothers, and that the response comes back they have Moses and the prophets. They should have been listening to Moses and the Prophets. And if they're not going to listen to what Moses and the Prophets said, it doesn't matter if somebody comes back from the dead and tells them to read them. They're not paying attention already. For a lot of my life, I sort of treated that like last part as like this unrelated coda that was really just a way to get to like a resurrection reference because Jesus is going to rise from the dead and that but no the inner logic is the unnamed rich man who is trying to be a good Jewish person, should know what the commandments were and what the will of the prophets was already, the right thing to do when there's a neighbor in need. And not just the pitiable thing, but the right thing is and the just thing is, when there's somebody at your door who is in need, you do not get the option of ignoring them. There's maybe different questions about what you're supposed to do for them, but how, how do we care for the neighbor in need? Indifference and apathy are not an option. It seems interesting to me, too, that in this story... The the poor man, Lazarus, is right at the, the rich man's gate. So that there is no excuse of, well, I didn't know. Or those people mm-hmm. who are in need are so, so far away, I have to look out for my own. He's right at your door. It is a willful choice not to recognize Lazarus at
1: your gate. Yep, if you see somebody bleeding that you have to literally step over to get into your house, mm-hmm. maybe do something about the bleeding man that's right at your door. Right.
0: And it seems to me, too... This echoes a a comment I've often heard attributed to uh, Dr. King about the parable we call the Good Samaritan. Mm -hmm. He says the priest and the Levite who walk past the man by the side of the road, their question is, what will happen to me if I stop? Because they're worried, oh, are the robbers around? Will they beat me up? Is this a trick or something like that? Mm -hmm. And the Samaritan's question is, what will happen to the man if I do nothing? And that he turns the question around. And when I read this parable, it seems like, that insight of Dr. King's isn't really Dr. King's wholehearted invention. Like, yeah, Jesus makes the same point, just in a different story. Mm -hmm. Here's somebody right at your gate. The assumption is, and not just this is Jesus' new idea, but Jesus says, I'm only saying what the prophets and Moses were saying all along, that there's an obligation to take care of the person who is around us. Now, we could also zoom out and ask the macro question about what helps somebody uh, versus what perpetuates bad uh, habits, right? So, like, Mm -hmm. there's a difference between... um, Helping the hungry Lazarus uh, who is at your gate and giving money to somebody who's an active drug addict so they can keep buying drugs. I, I get that. Nobody is suggesting let's give money to drug addicts so they can continue being drug addicts. And so often that's the move folks want to make. Is that, well, if you're saying that you should help whoever's at need, you automatically are saying that you should be giving resources away to drug addicts so they can keep, and you're trying to keep people in the position of being poor and needy rather than helping themselves. And no, I don't think that's what it is. The question is maybe what's the right kind of help in what circumstance. Um, but the point Jesus seems to be making is there's no way around the, the clear will of God in, in the Moses, in Moses and the prophets is you take care, you attend to the need of the neighbor in need. What you do to help depends on what their situation is. It seems also important to me to say, I think... The conversation we've been having so far is on track with what I think Jesus intends this parable to be about. It's about how we treat neighbors here and now. And, and obviously we assume that we're right about words. So like, okay, we pat ourselves on the back. We're good, we made it. But the reason I want to stress <laughs> that is I, I've heard this passage Use, and I think it is a misreading of the passage to be primarily about the architecture of the afterlife. Like, I've heard people say, Oh, oh yeah. this is about the geography of where heaven and hell are, and about what in between stations there are, and that it's primarily that Jesus is giving us, like, the blueprint, almost like Dante in the Divine Comedy, and they're saying, Here's how it works when you die, there's Abraham's bosom, and I've heard people even, like, make diagrams. are like, Abraham's bosom is a real heaven. There's, like, future heaven, but they're like, Abraham's bosom is temporary heaven. And then there's this dark place where uh, Hades, and that's not real final hell. There's, and, like, it seems to me that misses the point because this is the beauty of telling a story and that Jesus is using the tropes of... Uh, uh, of storytelling in his day that everybody sort of like would have taken it for granted is like, yeah, this is how you tell a story about the afterlife in order to make a point about the present moment. The same way that if I tell a joke and say a guy dies and goes to St. Peter at the gates, I don't really mean to tell you I actually think that there's a gate and there's a line like in all the cartoons. That's the standard trope, and anytime you see a cartoon or a joke that does that, that's the setup. We, we don't question that because that's how the setup goes. And then there's a punchline that makes a point further on. And,
1: and he's even using images that his audience would be aware of, exactly. right? Because he uses uh, Hades. Right. Which is Greek mythology. Mm-hmm. It's not part of the Jewish tradition, history, right. Right, right, right. anything. It, but he uses that word Hades, you know, which is... That's people, what, yeah, it's a Greek concept. Yeah, yeah, people are going to know what that is, even if they themselves do not believe in right, Hades. Right, right.
0: And uh, similarly, like, when Jesus says famously in Mark's Gospel to Peter, uh, you're Simon, or Matthew, you're Simon Peter, and on this rock I will build my church And the gates of... It's not hell, it's Hades. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Yeah. And it's because they're hanging out in a city where there's a deep cave where that is collectively known there uh, colloquially as that's the gates of Hades. <laughs> um, that, like there's there's all that sort of common stock background, and that the point here isn't that Jesus is saying the primary point of my story is to do a geography of heaven and hell, but jesus' story is much more about how do we treat people in this life, using that sort of standard image almost like almost the same way that like a classic movie like it 's a Wonderful Life is really about how you treat your neighbor, and the fact that there's angels in the story are kind of like the point of the movie is not to argue about how angels work or whether angels really get their wings when bells ring or something like that. If if you took that movie and you said, this is a scientific documentary about how angels get their wings, you'd be missing the point of the story, um, which is very much about how you treat your neighbor and the value of individual lives and things like that. I think in the same way, if we know how to read a movie like It's a Wonderful Life, we should know how to read a, a story that Jesus tells like this.
2: Well, and you know when when the rich man cries out to... To God and um, you know, asking for mm-hmm. water because he's in agony. I, I see that it's just pointing out yet again. Okay, you had this poor man at your gate who was mm-hmm. in agony. Mm-hmm. You did nothing for him. So guess what? Now you get to see what his life was like. Right, 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 right. and, and so, experience that and, and realize how much you deprived
0: him of right and to me it seems like this is less about jesus using that as a threat like all you listening i hope oh, you no, all no, no. and again that t- you can do things in storytelling in a parable that you can't do in real I mean, jesus doesn't ever go around and saying you rich person you don't know what it's like i'm gonna make you suffer but in a story mm-hmm. it's almost like it's-, it's got the value of a thought experiment it's like all right well here yeah here's this reversal this guy who totally didn't care about the neighbor who was around him Oh my goodness, now he realizes what he put his neighbor through by being indifferent and
2: apathetic. Yeah, 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 I would never say that this is, you know, well, if you don't do these things, then that's what's right, right, right. Um, but it's just helping people understand, okay. Wow, I treated my neighbor really properly, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. now this is what I'm getting
0: because yeah. of that. Yeah, that to me it seems is the genius reason behind Jesus' choice of naming Lazarus and not naming the rich man. Right? Yeah. That like, so here's this assumption in the culture where wealth is sort of assumed of like you've uh, you've made it for yourself. If you're if you're wealthy, there's a sign, uh, there are voices who would have said that's a sign of God's blessing. Mm-hmm. You're the one who uh, you know has, has worked hard for it. You've earned it, and in God's Economy. There's things are turned upside down. That this nobody who has no claim for himself, no wealth or anything, is given a name. He's remembered, and of course, Lazarus is Hebrew for God helps. Um, but this rich man is not remembered. And again, not it's not it's not like as a punishment. It's like the people who think they're big deals it turns out they're not big deals and in the end it's the nobodies who are chosen and precious to god it, it to me it's like one more illustration of the recurring theme throughout the scriptures of god lifting up the lowly and taking the arrogant down the arrogant mm-hmm. proud down a few pegs which again like is a theme all throughout Luke's gospel, you could say it's in all the gospels, but certainly in Luke, like, that begins with Mary singing a song about, here's how you know God's at work in the world. God feeds the hunger with good things and sends the rich away empty. Like, if you grew up with that as your lullaby, it should not surprise you that you grew up telling stories like the rich man and Lazarus. So, like, I, I'm glad I'm glad we spent our time here on this, because, uh, to be honest, when, when I've encountered folks who are dealing with this story, quite often their temptation is, this is this primarily about how I should picture heaven and hell. And that seems like, no, that's not the point. Um, and I'm also running into people who say things like, you know Jesus is telling a true story here because he gives the name, he, gives, he names Lazarus. I've, I've heard... Sermons by well known preachers who make that move and say Jesus is telling a true story. You know it because Lazarus has a name, and it seems, and they say, and he doesn't name any other characters in his stories, and it seems to me you're correct, he doesn't name other characters, but there's a point to it here, and there's a reason. It seems like if you actually spend time with the story, that argument falls apart, but I've heard it so many times, it really bothered me. It seems like it is deliberately misreading the point of the story. Probably because if we took it seriously, it, makes, it should make us scorn, right? And that so often, I mean, so many voices throughout history have said the real problem in the end isn't necessarily the, the direct evildoers, but the people who do nothing in the face of evil. So, like, when rottenness is happening, it's indifference that is the, maybe the greatest tragedy of all. And that seems to be the, the accusation here. That Jesus doesn't blame the rich man for being rich, but Jesus blames the rich man for not using his wealth in a way that takes care of the neighbor, which is the heart of the law and the prophets.
1: So, shall we move on to the Gospel of John? I think
0: we should. Where do we want to go there?
1: I think we should go to John 8. What a
0: lovely idea, shall we? Yeah. Where did you have in mind in John 8?
1: Right at the beginning.
2: (gasps) A very good place.
1: Technically, let's start at John chapter 7, verse 53. Of course. But but really, yeah, that's just last verse and seven yeah
0: <laughs> then each of them went home to john 753 is that's it, it, it it's a reminder to us that like these things chapters and verses are much later inventions mm-hmm. and were added and sometimes they make sense and sometimes it's a really that's where he
1: chose to end this yeah,
0: yeah we, we can we, yeah. we can skip ahead to how the story goes though huh
1: yeah but i think i think that is a little bit important because okay so 53 is then each went to his own home but jesus went to the mount of olives uh-huh. so i think it's important that jesus and those who were with him are now not together uh-huh. like i think that might be a little bit important it's not the main point of the story but it's important to know yeah
0: okay so there's the scene jesus has gone to the mount of olives, and what happens from there
1: um i'm just gonna read it oh awesome at dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him. So I guess more people are now with him. And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and said to her, "Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you?" "No one, sir." "See," she said. "Then neither do I condemn you." Jesus declared. "Go now and live your life of s- oh, leave your life of sin."
0: I, I would like to take a moment to say I can't wait until the audiobook series of Pastor Sarah reads
1: your favorite stories because
0: of the voices. So thank you just for the, that that live reading. You're welcome. All right, so it's a story that lots of people have heard, or probably lots of people have heard the last line because everybody has probably heard yeah. the "Go and sin no more," or whoever's without sin cast the first stone. Um, what el- what else is worth lifting up? Like, how do we get to that punchline at the end of the story?
2: So for me, this kind of goes back to um, something we talked about with the Sermon on the Mount and the 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 speck and the and the log in someone's eye. Okay. you know these Pharisees, these scribes, they they have caught this woman um, clearly in a sinful act. I mean, there there's no and and so they they're like, okay, Jesus, something's got to be done about this woman. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they see her sin very clearly, and yet. Jesus clearly be, being Jesus probably sees something in their lives
0: mm-hmm.
2: that may be much worse if they're if we can grave sins which you know I don't believe in I don't think Christians believe in that um, and so it it's just the idea of like okay well you want to you think that you're doing what's right but really are you doing what's right here I guess is maybe what I'm getting at and
0: maybe is it that they have a pretext for why they can say they're doing justice or being Mm -hmm. right, but they've clearly sort of stilted things in their favor. Uh, One, because uh, I I believe adultery requires more than one participant to be adultery, and it is woefully absent the other person here, and it seems interesting to me that what they've done is they rounded up this person, because she's an easy target, right? Mm -hmm. And if they round up the presumably the man in this uh, scenario, um, that hits close to home, because he's, you know, maybe he's a well-to-do member of the community, and there'll be scandal if mm-hmm. he's... Brought, but she's easy. She's an easy target. target. Yeah. And it seems to me like um, it is not reading between the lines to suggest, like, there's an agenda here, because if, if they are so concerned with rooting out sin and wickedness and corruption everywhere, why, why is it that only she has been brought mm-hmm. to Jesus? And... Why is it that they seem so eager? Like this seems like this is all set up either to make Jesus have to come down and either go on the public record of saying he doesn't believe in the law of Moses, and if if he lets her off the hook, or that Jesus has to be go on public record saying yeah, stoner, because that's what we have to do because the law says so and that there's a certain amount of, like, this is a a trap for Jesus, but it's also uh, that it's terrible that she's used as bait in that way. Uh That Like, they're not really about justice. They're about how do we trick Jesus and show power we have over this woman here.
1: Also, there's just a weird aside of Jesus drawing on the ground.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It, and it's it, to me, it's fun that like John, who is so often willing to give us the, the meanings of all the symbolic actions of Jesus, doesn't give us any clue about this. You know, <clears throat> like John is not one to waste symbolism. He'll say things like, you know, he said this in order to fulfill the prophecy. Blah 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 blah. Or uh, I just talked about sheep. Or, I'm the great shepherd. Or I just talked mm-hmm. about blindness. I'm the light of the world. Mm-hmm. Jesus doesn't waste metaphors in John's gospel. But here we get nothing, He's, he just starts drawing on the ground, and everybody starts hmm. dropping their rocks.
1: I wonder if that's because John didn't write this <laughs> portion well, of this gospel. Th- hmm.
0: That does also raise an interesting, if you are a church nerd, interesting question about this story doesn't appear in the earliest manuscripts we have of john's gospel or it, it appears in ancient manuscripts in different places some place it here in what we call john chapter 8 sometimes this story appears i think like 11 or 12 um and that makes some scholars go oh, was this a later addition to john it doesn't mean it didn't happen but it, it, it at least suggests it's a reminder all the gospels floated around first in oral tradition form first before somebody said we should put all this together and, you know, make it uncarryable.
1: And and that might help explain why this particular story doesn't feel like the rest of the gospel. Like, because it might have been added later of, this is a story that the community knew and loved and then realized, oh man, the author of John forgot to include our favorite story. Let's go ahead and put it in because Mm -hmm. it's important to us. Like, this is important to our community, to our identity as Christians, let's include it. And
0: there's nothing in this story that is so radically new or different from anything else in the Gospels that, like, our understanding of who Jesus is stands or falls on, whether this was or wasn't in the ancient manuscripts of John. Mm. It's not like, all of a sudden, like, there's a fourth member of the Trinity introduced. Like, it's Pete! It's the fourth member of the Trinity! No. Like, this is Jesus being Jesus, and in a sense, there's, um, there's, uh, you get the sense that if this were a later remembrance story that got added in, it's well, it makes sense to put it in because it fits with this is who Jesus is and was part of the early church's memory of what Jesus was like. Um, but yeah, t- that might explain a little bit about why the story feels a little wonky um, and uh, and why he Jesus does mysterious things without giving a speech at the end of it about why he does them. It, as far as like trying to get what does the story have to say about justice for us, it, it seems to me like there's a false temptation to treat this as that either you're for justice or you're for mercy and that it, you have to pick one or the other. And the, the, the people who come to Jesus are like, well, the law says you have to kill her, so either you're for justice or if you let her off the hook, you're one of those wusses who doesn't like justice, Jesus. And it seems like Jesus rejects that
2: mm-hmm. that
0: false choice by the way he handles the situation. I and mean, part of this is just kudos to Jesus for not taking the bait the way they set it up. But also that Jesus rejects that false choice that justice is not the opposite of mercy um and that if our assumption is that justice always means the opposite of mercy somehow our definitions need some work um and i at least it seems to me like as we've gone along the way through this whole series a a recurring lesson for me is that whatever justice is it it's most deeply about right relationship again which sometimes will look awfully graceful like feeding the hungry neighbor like lazarus that's not about punishing somebody's wrongdoing, that's about you have to do right to your neighbor because, duh, you're supposed to love your neighbor. And here, the people who say they are so concerned about justice and she needs to be punished because the law says so, I think Jesus sort of sees through it and is like, if this is really about you want to punish sin and you know root out corruption, where is the other guy? <laughs> um, and so Jesus responds in a way that's like, okay, you're allowed to carry out capital punishment as long as the person who throws the first stone is the one who has no sin, because that's the person who's... And like, oh, well, so Jesus hasn't said that adultery is cool. Jesus has just said, if you want to serve up the execution, okay, whoever is without sin, you get to be the first one.
2: And he's also, when he sends the woman away, again, he's not condoning the adultery that she was caught in. He Mm -hmm. said, okay, you've been caught. You've received mercy. Now don't do this again. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, which is, again, that restoring of right relationship, um, you know, because adultery houses. It breaks relationship. It breaks relationship, right,
0: right, yeah. Right, And so, like, th- to me this, this, maybe this is the Lutheran in me, um, but I, I am re- regularly reminded how um, uh, when Luther takes a look at the Ten Commandments uh, in the Catechism, he keeps coming back to how each of the commandments, even if they don't look like it at first, they really have to do with loving God and loving mm-hmm. neighbor. And, like, we might be tempted to hear things like don't steal and don't murder as these are just laws and if you break them, there's punishment and you get zapped. And Luther has a way of saying, sure there's laws there's consequences for them but more deeply to steal from somebody is not to love your neighbor because if you loved your neighbor, you won't take what is theirs. Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't kill your neighbor because, you know, killing is usually not a way of showing love to people. Um, and that each of these, the, 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 the focus is about how do we restore relationship with the neighbor? And when the relationship has been broken, how do we set things right again? Not that there's like some imaginary just list of rules and that God is only interested in sending out punishments or sending lightning bolts down for people who are rule breakers, but about how do we restore relationship. I, to me, it almost feels like you have to make that that kind of a move at the end of the story. Otherwise, you're left saying, "But she went unpunished, and sin must be punished." And Jesus just has this. Maybe this was not about. Um, maybe it's, maybe justice isn't in the end about did a certain pound of flesh get required? Is there is there punishment? But about how do we restore relationship here? Um, I remember years and years ago being a, a visitor in a church that had on their wall in like their social hall entryway kind of a thing, a plaque and it was a rock mounted to the plaque and the engraved bronze underneath it said for the one who is without sin and that was all it said. And like that image oh. is just like haunted me as like this really cool like gutsy sort of a that's a, that's a cool move. like if that's <laughs> what you're saying is you walk in, all right you're gonna throw stones the people get to pick this. I mean, it almost feels like the sword in the stone like you know, whoever can pull the sword from the stone can be King of Ilion you can have this rock but it's for the person who's without sin. (laughs) Um, And, I mean, like, part of the irony, I think, in the story, too, is that who, in the actual biblical stories, who's the one person the, the Christian faith remembers as the sinless one? It's, Jesus. it's not that there's nobody who has the, the right to throw a stone. Jesus would, and that's part of how the, the story concludes, right? Is there nobody else accusing you? Nobody else is around, she says, and Jesus says, I need to do I condemn you. So that, like, the early church would have looked at this and said, but Jesus has the right to. He could have. He could have picked up the rock and said, I'm the one person who's got the right because I have no sin. And Jesus chooses not to. To me, that also reminds me of our conversation earlier about the point of the, the law of retaliation, that it wasn't, if someone takes your eye, you must take their eye out, but it's a limit. There's, you can't go beyond this, so that Jesus is allowed to say, I, I refuse to uh, mete out vengeance against you or judgment against you, um, but there's the, there's the sense of the, the those laws are, are to put limits on how much can be done. So, other things we want to say about the story about the woman caught in adultery from John chapter eight, or elsewhere, depending on your ancient manuscript.
1: Go and sin no more.
0: <laughs> good. That's a good policy. That's a good policy. Well, on that note, we'll all try and sin no more. But we hope that next week you'll find yourself joining us here on Crazy Faith Talk. See
2: y'all. Bye. <laughs>